A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing, should I have an arthroscopy? for knee osteoarthritis. Now many people with osteoarthritis are considering an arthroscopy or a scope to help relieve their pain. Do they work? Are there any side effects? Now it's a hugely controversial area and there's a big gap between what evidence recommends and what occurs in many instances in practice. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this topic. And we're joined by none other than Chris Fatulo and Teppo now, Professor Chris Fatulo is a specialist orthopedic knee surgeon. He's the president of the Australian Knee Society, the chair of the Australian Orthopedic Association Youth Sport Injury Prevention Working Group, and an adjunct professor at Griffith University. And he's currently listed amongst the top 100 orthopedic influences in the world. And Professor Teppo Yaravinen is an orthopedic surgeon at the Department of Orthopedics and Trauma at Helsinki University and Helsinki University Central Hospital. And Tepo led the Fidelity trial, which is a pivotal trial looking at the arthroscopic treatment of degenerative meniscal tears and has a strong interest in the too much medicine movement. So Tepo and Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks Thank very you, much, David. David. Great to have you along. Now, in the interest of complete transparency, before we get started, uh, Chris or Teppo, do you have any relevant arthroscopic conflicts of interest that we should be aware of? Chris? Well, no commercial ones, except I do perform arthroscopic surgery. So I think that's 
something to take into account. <laughs> That's all good, Teppo. I've, I've received about 2 million euros in research funding for uh, various projects that are related to various kinds of arthroscopic surgeries, but they all come from governmental agencies. So in that sense, I feel like I don't have any relevant conflicts. And also I need to emphasize that, that the funding authorities or bodies have no, no saying to what we do or what we publish. So you, no, it's, you go and see That's helpful. I think it's just important to have uh, complete transparency there, but, um, Chris, maybe if you want to go first, but I'm just going to, I guess, get the listeners to learn a little, little bit about you and what you do. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, uh, what would they be? Look, I, uh, I try to be ethical, pragmatic. I try to avoid surgery. I'm a conservative surgeon. I really only operate when I think that there's a reasonable prospect that's going to improve the patient. And I'm personally, I'm you know, married. I have three sons. I, they're all very active young men and I worry about their hurting themselves with their sport, but uh, I play a variety of sports as well. When you're not doing your day job, what do you enjoy doing? Uh, look, I uh, grew up on the Gold Coast. So I'm a I'm surfing and uh, mountain bike and I'm a snowboarder, a road biker as well. And I've, uh, through COVID, rediscovered my love fishing. So I've been, I had a fishing coach recently uh, over Easter. So I've been doing some uh, fishing in the uh, estuaries in the uh, river and, and out in the ocean too here locally. Oh, superb. What do you catch up there? Maybe be catching Trevally near my house, actually. So there's a bridge. It's quite a large bridge. And right under it, I've been catching Trevally, which is a large, large-ish river of estuary fish, but it does go out to sea. So Trevally, uh, in the seaway, I've been catching uh, some uh, mackerel and brim and other things like that. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Now, when you're um, doing your day job, can you just describe a little bit to the listeners what it is that you actually do? So about half the week, I'll see patients in consultation uh, who have, I only do knee surgery, so I do joint replacements and sports medicine, arthroscopy. And then I'll see patients who are referred to me by their general practitioner and we'll discuss you know, their condition, what's wrong with it, uh, what, what problems they're having, and then we'll... Uh, enact a plan depending on their problem and the other half a week i'm operating so i'll be doing knee replacements i'll be doing osteotomies which is a joint preserving operation for people who are active with osteoarthritis i'll doing knee reconstructions and quite frequently repairing meniscus so a lot of meniscus repairs which are where the meniscus is actually potentially we can put it back and, and, and stitch it back together uh, that's my main uh, practice, and I only do knee surgery. I don't do uh, you know, hip surgery or any other type of procedures now. Fantastic. Now, Teppo, your turn. If you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I guess I have to start with my training. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training, or bone blacksmith, as I would like to call it. But that's just by training. Uh, about three, four years ago, I quit doing clinical work. So I'm, uh, I'm the head of our academic department. I train our surgeons and our medical students. So that's my day job. But my real, real passion is research. And, and now that I've, I don't do clinical work anymore, I, I get to do a whole lot more 
research work. Other adjectives to describe myself, maybe, maybe I'd like to call myself hardworking, honest, straight, to the point where people consider me blunt at times. I'd like to describe myself as a no BS kind of a guy. Yeah, as for my hobbies, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. I, um, I've uh, tried a lot of sports. Uh, I used to play squash. I uh, used to play basketball. But about 10 years ago, I found my love in, in, in a sport called Padel, P-A-D-E-L, which is still very small, uh, but it is a huge sport in Spain, uh, Portugal, Argentina. It comes originally from Mexico, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of a mixture of tennis and squash. You play it in a, in a slightly smaller court than in tennis. It's always double, so it's, a, it's kind of a mixture of a team sport and an individual sport. A lot of fun. All right, now let's get into the meat of what uh, I think the listeners are here for. Chris, I'm just wondering if you could, in the first instance, just describe what an arthroscopy, a scope, uh, wash out or clean out of the knee actually is? So an arthroscopy is just a, a way of accessing the joint without making a big incision. And so it's just two or three little nicks around the knee. You could actually do it under local anesthetic or a general anesthetic. And it's a really nice way of visualizing the joint and to see what's happening. Now, uh, so you can just do a diagnostic arthroscopy. We hardly ever do that these days because we have MRI and other modalities which are probably more accurate and then it depends what you do so a lot of the time uh, firstly arthroscopies were invented effectively a uh, long time ago in japan in the 1920s for doing removal of loose bodies or anisectomies where you excise a piece of tall meniscus and the technique's been expanded and we can do uh, more procedures such as knee reconstructions and other procedures so the term arthroscopy isn't really a procedure you sort of need to explain it's a visualization technique and then depends what you do but as you alluded to david most people when they talk about an arthroscopy uh most people are thinking about a clean out or a washout and those terms are popular in australia suggesting that you, know, you can somehow wash out the uh osteoarthritis of the knee which obviously you can't uh or somehow you know, washing out or putting fluid in there makes a the person better which clearly it does not so the term is mainly uh, a little bit vague, and that's probably the surgeons who use the terminology's fault. Some of these terms should be a bit clarified. Thank you. Now, Teppo, um, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the evidence for the efficacy for knee osteoarthritis and separately for degenerative meniscal tears. And I guess just preface that answer with what is a meniscus? There are two menisci in the knee, one in the inner side, which is called the medial side, uh, and one on the outer side or the lateral side. They are th these kind of like a half circle crescent type of cartilage pieces that are there. Um, a lot of people call them cushion, cushion for the knee, but they are there mainly for, for making the knee more stable throughout the range of motion or when you uh, straighten and, and flex or, or straighten your knee, they kind of move a little bit about and, and give you more stability and also maybe a little bit of cushion for, cushion for, the, um, for the articular cartilage. So that's how I would 
describe them, but I'm happy happy if you, Chris, can can add if if I missed something or I, if I wasn't clear enough. No, it's very clear. Yes, uh, crescent shape meniscus, uh, which you know, spread the load in the joint as you described exactly. Okay, and as for for your question about the evidence on on the surgery, there are a few people who disagree with the fact that this is probably one of the most or the best researched topics in in the entire orthopedics in the field of orthopedics. We currently have about 10 high quality trials comparing various kinds of procedures that you can do in the knee to either conservative treatment which means phys uh, physical therapy or um, exercise therapy or as you mentioned earlier our fidelity trial that compared the actual surgery of resecting little damaged parts of the meniscus to placebo or sham surgery where we basically just looked inside the knee but didn't do any procedure while doing the surgery and all of these trials very consistently have shown that there is no added benefit to either doing physical physiotherapy or even sham surgery so this is basically the big picture we can go into little details but it really doesn't change yeah no i think i think that's that's probably it because we'll probably dig a little bit more into some of the details as as we go into it so it, it doesn't appear to provide any benefit over physical therapy or sh or sham this is probably the substance of your comments but chris are there any risks associated with the procedure yeah so any surgical procedure has risks so if you're arthroscope arthritic knees or osteoarthritic knees uh, the infection rate's actually higher than average it's probably because the local immune system is, is damaged. So uh, an infected uh, joint after a, um, say, an arthroscope is, is not common, but it's uh, quite a devastating event for the individual who suffers that, particularly if the operation really isn't going to help. And if you, if you had to quantify that broadly, just in percentage terms for the average person, what's, what's the percent chance they'll get a, an infected knee after an arthroscopy? I think probably it's, uh, you know, like for an arthritic knee, you're probably around one in 500 or something like that. Yeah. Any other risks in terms of clots, uh, death? Yeah, so, so there's risks of uh, blood clots in the, in the calf particularly. While they can be inconvenient for the person, the ones in the calf aren't particularly dangerous. They don't tend to spread. One's up in the thigh and the pelvis. They're ones we really worry about. You can give a pulmonary embolism. This type of early ambulatory day surgery, the, the, the thrombosis, like the PE, pulmonary embolism risk and the significant one is actually really quite low. But, you know, again, um, it, it's something you need to discuss with a patient if you're operating on them, like any operation. Patients usually get pain around the little portals at the front. So they're usually sore for a couple of uh, months and uh, tender. And probably one of the biggest complications if you do a meniscectomy in someone who already has osteoarthritis is that potentially you can actually make their osteoarthritis worse. You can give something called a stress fracture uh, of the joint surface of the bone and occasionally uh, you can get collapse of the bone. And that can be quite a, a debilitating problem because uh, that can push the person into an end, 
unfortunately needing a knee replacement, uh, which can be uh, you know, quite debilitating when you know, it's a complication. Uh, the other complications are less common, but you know, they're the sort of main ones, I think, that you'd have to mention to patients if you are contemplating any arthroscopic undertaking. Now, are there any instances, again, based on what Tepa has told us about um, the efficacy and what you've mentioned about the risk, are there any instances where a person who has knee osteoarthritis might actually need an arthroscopy? Yeah, so someone with uncomplicated knee osteoarthritis, and these terms aren't really well defined, but you know, just you know, an arthritic knee that uh, has no other real problems, so it's not locked, there's no loose bodies floating around it, you know, they're not going to benefit. So the only time you'd really contemplate it would be mainly a loose body, and that's a piece of often bone or a large piece of articular cartilage that's actually jammed in the knee, and the person can't really straighten their knee out. And some people, particularly osteoarthritis in the outside part of their knee, they seem to have these loose bodies which develop and they're going around. It's not something that come on gradually. This is somebody who was fine and then suddenly their knee jams. They cannot straighten it and they're in a lot of pain and they've got a piece of uh, bone or something stuck in the front of their knee which stops them straightening it. Now, again, the more arthritic the knee gets, the more you start to, as a surgeon, think is this really going to benefit the person. You have to be careful because when people describe, say, we we ask them before they come and see me, ask about their symptoms, and I've actually never had a patient with a locked knee, that's one that's jammed, ever say that their knee is locked. The symptoms the patients describe, particularly around uh, catching, clicking, locking, are really not accurate, particularly around locking. I've actually had a patient who really said my knee's locked. Uh, They just described this sudden severe pain, they can't straighten it. A lot of patients describe a locked knee when they can't bend it, and that's just usually typically osteoarthritis causing the problem. The other reason you'd scope them is uh, if they have an infection, occasionally you see somebody with an infection, and that would be a reason to do an arthroscope to wash it out. You occasionally see people with uh, tumours around their joint that you would go and remove, those sort of things. And then sometimes you see people whose knees are actually locked because of a meniscus tear. And often in those situations, I try and repair them if I can, if they're repairable. So the bigger the tear and the more it gets inside the joint and you can't straighten it, that's often a meniscus tear that's repairable depending on how much osteoarthritis is in the knee. I mean, thinking about how common osteoarthritis is, are the instances you just described common or infrequent? Really hard as a surgeon because all day long I see people with osteoarthritic knees. And so... If you ask me, everybody seems to have an osteoarthritic knee, and clearly they don't. And then, uh, yeah, but as you're saying, the, the, the proportion of people who actually, with knee osteoarthritis, who are potential candidates for an arthroscope of their knee is, is very low. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Now, talking a little bit about the consequences for arthroscopy, but Tepo, are you more or less likely to require a total joint replacement after arthroscopy? David, if you don't mind, I would like to give the listeners a little perspective on this issue through a little, very brief history. So arthroscopy was introduced, as Chris already said, about 100 years ago. But once the, the technique really evolved, it became really popular in the 80s. And it was first used for people around their 20s to treat real injuries. Someone who sprains their knee while playing soccer and has a locked locked knee, like Chris just described, can't extend the knee fully. But all of a sudden, we started 
scoping also middle-aged patients uh, who had knee pain, but not really a consequence of a clear trauma, one event, but just gradually developed knee pain. And uh, we started scoping those knees and noticed that they also had things that looked like meniscal tears. The, the meniscus wasn't pristine as it is in when people are in their 20s, but it, start, it, it was just various kind of features that looked like the menisci or the meniscus was damaged. And we started treating this and, and people were happy after the surgery. And, and what happened over the next 10 to 15 years, 90%, at least 90% of our surgeries involved or were done to people who were around their 50s. So there are, you know, there are two completely distinct animals in this population. So when we are talking about knee arthroscopy, we should distinguish the, the young people in their 20s who shouldn't worry about the risks of surgery because when you are young, the risk of surgery that Chris just described are lower. And then we have this huge population of people who still undergo knee arthroscopy who are in their 40s, 50s, or even 60s, um, who do have a slightly higher risk of surgery. I wouldn't emphasize the risk of surgery. As, as uh, Chris just explained, they are somewhere around, you know, uh, one in 500, one in 1,000. There was actually a big, big study uh, from England that, that showed exactly that. So the risks are not the issue here. They, they are sudden. The issue is whether you can expect to have a benefit, a benefit that you will consider something worthwhile going through the operation. You asked about the risk of knee replacements after arthroscopy. Again, this is, this is something, this was one of the main arguments in, uh, let's say, 10, 15 years ago to do, to carry out arthroscopy for someone middle-aged with knee pain because we thought, we honestly thought that these are causing knee osteoarthritis. But most of these, I call them myths, have been, uh, have been busted. We've shown through studies that it really doesn't work that way. And right now, we are actually thinking that knee arthroscopy might actually increase your risk of developing OA or your risk of getting a total knee replacement. There are some uh, studies that indicate this. However, I have to emphasize that these studies have their own inherent biases. And if, the, if we were to have this discussion, let's say in six months time, I could give you some evidence from our fidelity trial because this is really, and I know that I'm sounding a little arrogant saying this, but this is really, the first study that can conclusively give an answer to this question because in this population all of the people had knee arthroscopy and that might on its own right or or as a as a procedure have some detrimental effect on knee cartilage but then we also have half of the population who have had their meniscus meniscus resected or part of the meniscus resected so this study will give us, hopefully within the next six months, a little more 
evidence to, to talk about the risk of maybe developing advanced NEOA. Now, Teppo, you're obviously on a roll. While you're on that roll, can I just get you to think a little bit about the placebo effects associated with the surgery? Because for some other interventions in medicine, we may consider magnifying the placebo effect and using that placebo effect. Placebo effect here has been shown to be pretty large. Is that something that should justify or warrant the use of arthroscopy? I mean, this is, this is more of a philosophical question. If we are to consider that the use of placebo in this sense is okay, at least we know that, 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 that then we are going to subject patients to, or the healthcare system to a lot of costs. Traditionally, if we consider medicines, drugs, or injections. Surgery has inherent risks. Nobody denies that surgery is still more risky than most of medicine, medicines or injections. And if we've thought it is not okay to treat people with an intervention that has nothing additional to the mere placebo effect. But of course, if, if the medical society decides that it's okay to treat people with interventions that have huge placebo effects, because this is what surgery has, it does have a huge placebo effect, then I'm fine with that. The, the only problem with that is that then a lot of other interventions that we have considered non-medicine, like homeopathy or other interventions, they are just the same. Whenever doctors talk about homeopathy or any other non-medical intervention, the argument for criticizing these interventions is that they have nothing but placebo. So that, that, that's a huge question. Personally, I was trained to be a medical doctor and believe in the concept that we are dealing with, that, that everything that we do has to be shown through scientific means to, to, to add something of value. Surgery has huge placebo effects, but that cannot be used as an argument to carry out unnecessary surgeries or surgeries that offer nothing but that. No worries. Thanks, Tepo. Now, um, another element here that we think it's important to consider is that of, is that of the cost. Now, Chris, happy to speak in Australian dollar terms, but what's the typical direct healthcare cost per person, just on average? when you consider the, the surgeon, the anesthetist, the hospital, um, other costs? Yeah, it's probably around, uh, for you know, meniscectomy, it's probably around about three to $4,000 as a day surgery procedure. Yeah. Per person, yeah. So it's yeah. Per person. So it's not, you know, it's quite a large uh, cost. And also then you have to take into account uh, the loss of earnings on a, inability to work. Most of these people are actually middle-aged, so they're still working. So there's some substantial costs, both direct and indirect. And Teppo, you don't have to talk about Australia because I know you love this place, but um, do you have any sense of the international estimates of costs from other countries or healthcare systems, just to, just to give us a sense of the magnitude of the cost of the healthcare system? Last estimates that I've seen come from, from the US. So it was about seven, 700,000 to 1 million knee scopes a year. 
as I said, 90% of these are typically done to middle-aged or older people. And the, the late, latest estimates that I've seen are around $4 billion US dollars per year. A lot of cash. A lot of cash, yes. Yeah. Now, one of the arguments that's used to justify the continued use of arthroscopy in the osteoarthritis is that there's a particular subgroup that may benefit or not from this, uh, that hasn't necessarily been shown in any research at this point in time. But Teppo, is there any further efficacy research that is needed on this topic? I mean, that's, that's, that's a brilliant question. Um, yes, um, the proponents of, of this procedure, of these procedures always argue that there are subgroups. Chris already mentioned those with mechanical symptoms. Whatever mechanical symptoms are, we, we don't have a uniform definition for them. And that's, that's one of the problems trying to, to assess whether that argument is really valid or just another myth. Uh, then people typically at least used to say that people with a sudden onset of symptoms, for example, a, some kind of a traumatic event. Again, the problem with this is that what is the definition of trauma? And we can go on and on with that. Um, would be more, a bit more optimal candidates for um, these procedure. The problem with that argument that I have is that there, there actually is study from Denmark that shows that these people, they classified people based on the onset of symptoms into traumatic or sudden onset of symptoms and those with less sudden onset of symptoms. And it turned out that, that completely opposite to our previous perceptions, those with a sudden onset of symptoms actually did way worse than those who had a more chronic onset of symptoms. Every so often, somebody offers an explanation, uh, own perception that uh, he or she can identify as a surgeon who benefits from surgery. Uh, there are two recent studies, one coming from Denmark and, and Sweden, and the other one mainly carried out in the Netherlands or Holland, uh, where they try to identify subgroups of patients who would be more optimal responders to this procedure. All of these, all of these studies, or both of these studies, failed to, to find any subgroups. So actually, it turned out that even the clinical experience of the surgeons in the, in the study that involved Australian surgeons, it turned out that more experienced surgeons were no better than uh, younger uh, surgeons or even residents in identifying those who, who actually benefited from surgery. So this is troubling. We have similar evidence from other, other orthopedic uh, procedures like wrist fractures. We, we used to consider ourselves experts in, in being able to identify the patients whose um, fracture is going to, to develop into a worse scenario and, and that thus requires surgical intervention. The more we do research, the more it seems to be, it seems to be a very consistent finding that we are, we are actually not able to identify those who really um, need surgery. The latest in this line of research was 
our recently published paper on humeral shaft fractures. In the past, we used to think that certain types of fractures were more prone to lead into non-union or the fracture not healing than other types of fractures. Now that we actually really studied these, these, this population, it turned out that it was completely the opposite. So we have a lot of old myths that some of them are valid, some of them are really valid information, and others seem to be just clinical experience that has never been tested. Fantastic. Thanks, Teppo. And I guess just to sum a couple of your comments made there, I think obviously mechanical symptoms, so things like uh, catching and clicking, or it can be arbitrarily defined in different ways, uh, is often used to justify the surgery. But as you just said, it uh, doesn't necessarily identify those people who are more likely to respond. And similarly, surgeons can't reliably predict those who might do well from the surgery. Now, I guess all of Taking all of that into context, so Chris, um, you've been responsible for some work where you've demonstrated that arthroscopic surgical volume is actually going down in Australia. Just wondering if you could quantify how much down that has gone and why do you think it's actually going down? I believe it's uh, due to the, since 2013, there's been, as Teppo said, lots of high quality studies showing that uh, these surgeries for you know, meniscectomies and presence of osteoarthritis aren't beneficial to patients. And so as a clinician, that's been really fantastic because I used to get patients come in with their MRI and they'd have their MRI report and they'd have highlighted all the bits about their meniscectomy or their meniscal tears, but ignoring the fact that they've got a knee osteoarthritis. In fact, uh, one of the problems in this whole discussion is that MRI is probably overused in these situations and the terminology is really quite uh, vague. And it, I personally think it shouldn't be discussed in terms of when you've got osteoarthritis, you shouldn't talk about meniscal tears at all. You probably should use terms like uh, you know, osteoarthritis related meniscal changes because every person with some osteoarthritis, their meniscus is going to look abnormal. And, Literally, I would see probably today seven or eight people I had this discussion with, you know, they've got osteoarthritis. You can see on the x-ray, their joint space is a bit narrowed. They've got the typical, as Jeppo said, the atraumatic, so non-trauma that it needs to started hurting. And they've had an MRI and it shows that their meniscus are abnormal as they would be. And then and that's clearly not a justification for operating. And I say to them, look, there's been lots of studies over the last seven years now that show that in your situation, people do just as well uh, if they don't have an operation. And in fact, they go off and have rehabilitation. And so that's what you should do. And a lot of people I see have an expectation that surgery can fix everything. And I say to them, look, you don't need an operation. If you, you know, lose weight and exercise your muscles, particularly your quadriceps, such as bike riding, your symptoms are very likely to go away. And I can show you there's lots of studies now that shows that. So, because people used to ask me, what do you think, doctor? What do you believe? Like it was a religious event, but in fact, it's not. There's lots of evidence showing that arthroscopy clearly doesn't help in the presence of uncomplicated osteoarthritis. So, Chris, you really mentioned that, that obviously imaging is playing a role and why um, the surgery may still be happening, or at least people are turning up for surgery. But, Teppo, are there any other factors that might be contributing to why the surgery is still happening and why there's so much variation geographically? 
the mere fact that there are huge differences, even tenfold differences between different regions, um, cannot be explained by anything but uh, surgical preference. There is no other plausible explanation for, for that kind of huge variation in surgical volumes. So it, it has to do with surgical education. But I, I, I would like to very briefly comment on what Chris just said, because I, you know, this is, this, is, this is something that is very bizarre to me that in other fields, and I know that you, David, come from, you are a very big name in the OA field. And in there, nobody talks about degenerative meniscal tears as a, as a separate clinical entity. Everybody understands that it's just like wrinkles in the face or in the skin. It is just one feature of NEOA. Other than that, we are doing some research to, to elucidate why do we have these huge variations and especially what is going on because this is a global phenomenon. Even in, in healthcare systems where there are high financial incentives, um, even within Finland, we have a private sector and we have the public sector, uh, but the same declining trend has, has taken place in both of these sectors while in the, in the public sector, we, have, we don't have any financial incentive to uh, de-invest. While in the private sector, we have a huge incentive to do more surgery. Still, those guys are doing. So there is really something uh, of a global pandemic, if you allow me to use this word, going on within the orthopedic community. What is funny is that the, the, the big organizations, the European Arthroscopy organization, the, and especially the U.S. organization are not supporting or, or, or have not uh, officially accepted the fact that this mostly is an un, uh, unnecessary surgery. So they are still promoting this surgery, but despite this, surgeons are responding by cutting down on the number of surgeries. So what, why is disinvestment in medicine so hard? I, I'm actually working on a paper on this. I said I'm just a simple bone blacksmith, but I, I'm collaborating with people way smarter than I am. Working title of the paper is Why are doctors so stubborn in and quitting uh, unnecessary or uh, procedures that are not, be not beneficial. The reasons are very much um, common to, to all the fields uh, of medicine or, and even the society. We, we just have a tough time accepting the fact that the stuff that we really believed in and we really have invested a lot of intellectual brain power is proven futile. It, it is simply too difficult for most people to accept. So I find it much easier to talk someone into an operation than out of it. And I think, Chep, I, I don't know, you probably don't have, obviously have a clinical practice, but there's Google reviews and uh, there's a thing called RateMDs and the most unhappy people I've ever seen who write really quite nasty reviews about me are ones who I declined to operate on. And I said, look, you don't need an operation, you need to go and lose weight, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they really, some people really don't like to hear that, that surgery is not for them and that they'll do this as well. So it's a, it, it's a real psychological thing. We actually had a paper we 
documented the drop in arthroscopies uh, and over 50 year olds over the last five years in Australia. You know, it's probably around 40 plus percent now. But we looked at the drivers of that, and uh, it is very complex. It's, you know, if you, as Depo suggested, your favorite operation is removing meniscus, and then suddenly papers start appearing over the course of two years that uh, it isn't going to help your patient. It, it is a real psychological adjustment as a surgeon because surgeons are trying to do the right things by their patients, you know, and they're trying to improve their outcomes. And if you're suddenly going for this mindset of this is what you need to, oh, no, that's not going to help you, it's hard. And you know, imagine if you've done, I don't know, in 10 years ago an arthroscopic meniscectomy on someone's left knee and they turn up with the same problem on the right. It's a very hard explanation uh, to say, oh, look, increasing evidence has shown that, you know, that operation we did probably isn't going to help didn't help you but the patient is but doctor i was so much better after that. i've come back to you because you made my other knee so much better so it is a complex discussion and there's some evidence that uh surgeons sometimes operate because it's a it's a path of least resistance that it's very hard to avoid disappointing their patients so it sounds like there's a big role for both educating consumers about its merits as well as the surgeons tepo you wanted to make a comment yeah, I mean, I had a I had a very uh, vivid discussion with 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 a knee surgeon from from UK about this, and and uh, you know, I I just had to tell him he was so furious about my views, so I had to tell him, and he he asked me, so what do I tell these patients? And uh, I I told him I don't have any kids, so I'm not giving any parenting advice here, but I'm I was trying to compare it to being a parent. Sometimes you have to tell your, your kids not to do something, although they really want to do it. And I mean, that, I think that's part of being a doctor. When you know better, you just sometimes have to, to, to uh, make this unpleasant decision for your patients. And I, I know it's difficult, but that's part of being a, a good doctor. I mean, this is difficult but we just have to educate the community, but we have to be very consistent with our messages. And I, I mean, this madness is going to go away. Don't worry. It's going to, it, it will take a generation. Usually things take a tenth generation. We orthopedic surgeons have been able to cut down on the number of surgeries by 50%. We still have probably another 30 to 40% to get to a, the right level, but we are getting there. Now, for both of you, are there any patient-friendly resources that might shed further light on this if people wanted to dig into them that are readily accessible that you could link us towards? The Australian Knee Society has a, uh, a handout on their website about the journey of meniscus tears. I actually wrote it you know, about exactly this topic. Also, Arthritis Australia have a great document. And, and I've seen lots of good uh, articles in, in, uh, online. Actually, on my website, I have a, a talk I'm giving to some physiotherapists about meniscectomy and, and why it's uh, you know, exactly what we're talk, talking about here. Just as a, a, an educational point, I think it's also important for us to educate as surgeons our general practice uh, colleagues. Uh, there was an, an article in the British, I think it was a British medical journal where surgeons were criticising uh, general practitioners for referring patients for arthroscopy, which is really crazy and saying that was the reason why the rates are too high. But uh, certainly the surgeons should say, no, you don't need that. But they also should educate 
general practice colleagues because for years, basically, meniscus tear equals arthroscopy, and we really need to reverse that mindset. And you can tell the patient when they're referred, or you're going to see a surgeon, and that surgeon, you know, you might need an arthroscope or you will need an arthroscope. It sort of sets in a tray and a set of events which are best avoided. So also we should need to educate our general practice colleagues. Fantastic. Yeah. So we might uh, just try and wrap it up. And I'm not sure whether you guys have thought about it at all, but if you could have a billboard with anything on it, Chris, what would it be and why? I think, I think just emphasising the importance of keeping your weight down and keeping fit, you know. You know ride your bike, don't eat so much. <laughs> Very, very worthwhile advice. Keep, keep moving. Yeah, Teppo. Yeah, keep, keep moving. Is there any advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? Chris captured it, it quite well. I, I, I would also like to tell them that, that knee pain is a common feature of, of aging, but don't let it discourage you because it usually goes away, especially if you do exactly what Chris said. And even if you don't lose weight, if you get a bit more active and maybe to get yourself a good physio uh, or a personal trainer, it doesn't have to necessarily be a physio. And I know they are gonna hate me for, for saying this, but to get someone who teaches you how to, to use your muscles because Usually, you know, I know that the orthopedic surgeons and the community believes in the, in the quadriceps, but, but there is some evidence to even show, and, and, and uh, at least here I'm a believer, but it could be a bit more complex than just the quadriceps. It could be a problem of you, how you are using the, the entire kinetic chain, how you use your buttocks, how you use your hamstrings. So... To get to someone who knows how to start training, training properly, and eventually the pain will go away. Plus, you get the extra benefit of feeling great after having done a good exercise. Fantastic. Now, guys, thank you so much for your time, your insights, your wisdom. That's greatly appreciated. Um, so that's all for this episode of Joint Action. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointaction.org. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.